Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. But with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, how it is living and active. It's not just this old, dusty, ancient document, even though it was written thousands of years ago, um, that today your spirit is at work through it, um, convicting us of the fallen, sinful, broken parts of our life and pointing us to the hope found in Jesus. And so we pray that you might do that tonight in a fresh way through this text, that we might see the beauty of Jesus and the beauty of following him and might uh, see fruit in our lives from that. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have a confession. Uh, Ever since I lived in Philadelphia, I've become super paranoid about parking. Uh, I I had a friend. um, I've just heard so many horror stories and a few things happened to me. and weren't too bad. I got tickets. But I have one friend who just went for like this quick stop at the Italian market in South Philly. Uh, and was like, I'm just going to run in and go get some cheese or something. And he was just parked like slightly too close to a fire hydrant and his car got towed and he had to go to the impound and like get a pay like a $200 fee just to get his car back. And so like now, like just that feeling of like leaving my car and being like, ah, if, if I come back, is there going to be a ticket here? Like, am I, am I going to get a boot on my car? And is this car just not going to be here when I show up? Like, now when I park somewhere, it's just Pavlovian. I have to double, triple check, look around, see the signs, like make sure there's not like a yellow curb that I'm too close to. And two, and two summers ago, I, I kind of had a, another experience of this. My family and I, we went up to Erie, Pennsylvania for like a quick little trip. It's like, you know, Lake Erie up there. Um, and the Airbnb that we stayed at was like a little bit more sketchy of an area than I, I was anticipating based on the website when we looked at it. Uh, and when I arrived, I was super concerned about the parking because not only it was, you know, the normal issues were going on, but I saw these signs all over that were basically like street sweepers come here at a certain time. And, you know, if you're, if your car's here, like it, it almost seemed like they were going to tow it or just the sweet, just like the street sweepers just going to like plow through it. Uh, and just my car was going to be destroyed by the street sweeper. And so I just made sure I was like, okay, I read the sign. Like it's right. I've got everything. Uh, all my ducks in the row. It's going to be fine. Well, late at that night, 
um, I start hearing this beeping. It sounds like a truck. And I start seeing these flashing like hazard lights, like 2 a.m. in the morning, and, and my heart starts to race, and I have like worst case scenarios like running through my head. I'm like, what if I miss something and I didn't park correctly and like they are towing our van, we're gonna be stranded here in Erie, Pennsylvania. And uh, I actually started like saying out loud, I was like, no, no, and like Kim, Kim makes fun of me about this all the time because she's just like in a daze, sort of waking up, seeing me throw on my clothes. And finally I peek out the blinds and find out it's just a trash truck that's passing by at 2 a.m. in the morning, which what city has trash trucks going around at 2 a.m. in the morning? That's a whole other issue. But the point of that whole story is with all my double checking, with all me trying to cover my bases as much as possible, I woke up with just no confidence. And so I want to ask you, ask all of us this evening, how do you deal with uncertainty in life? Do you do sort of what I do? You, you double and triple check everything? I, mean, I think some of us, we're that way, readily reveal our OCD or anxiety in the face of the uncertainties of life. But there's other ones that are maybe in denial about how uncertain life actually is. Uh, we, we think if we can do all the research, just consider all our options, make the best possible decision, we can avoid uncertainty. I mean, maybe that's kind of, you came here to Wofford, you planned out, you calculated where, where is going to be the best place to go for where I want to go to next. And you're thinking, I, I've got this all planned out. And yet, I've only been here a few weeks, and I've already talked to so many juniors and seniors who are majoring in completely different things than what they originally planned. And, and there's others of you that came to Wofford thinking, this is going to be the time of my life, and yet you're experiencing incredible struggles with maybe your own physical health or mental health. And then others of you that just, just thought this was going to be your home, and now you're wondering, okay, can, can I even spend another semester here? I, I hope whatever plans you have have actually panned out. I'm not trying to be a downer here. That's what I want for my own life. But the reality is that will never be the case long term. Life is uncertain. Uh, and, and kind of the ultimate uncertainty that hangs over all of us that's in this passage is death. We've got all these plans. We've got all these dreams. But we don't know if we will make it to the next day. It, you, we can't foolproof our life against that uncertainty. We live in an uncertain world. And I think for some of us that have come to terms with that, it's just enough to make us want to cur curl up on the couch and just do nothing. Paul in this passage it is living and breathing uncertainty as he's writing this letter from prison. He, he doesn't know how long he's going to be there. He doesn't know how his trial in Rome that he's awaiting is going to go, whether he's going to be freed or executed. He, he is really facing that ultimate uncertainty, death. And even more, if you see in this passage, he's not even sure what he wants. Like there in verses 21 through 23, Paul kind of has this like Shakespearean soliloquy moment where you know, he's doing the whole Hamlet, like 
to be or not to be is the question. There's an uncertainty not only in his situation in the world around him, but there's this uncertainty within himself and his own emotional world and what he wants. Paul is in this situation of such great uncertainty that I really think most of us, if we placed ourselves there, would give up, give up hope or just go straight into a panic attack. And yet Paul is joyful and confident in this passage. I recently stumbled across this article. It was written by a professor who uh, was reflecting on how his prior mental health struggles had helped him actually weather the pandemic, that the pandemic shutdown actually didn't impact him as as heavily as he was seeing other people. Um, And there's something in particular that really stuck out. I'm going to read a section from from this article. He writes, During my mental health struggle... I sensed an expanding and perpetual feeling of uncertainty. Similar to how many of us have felt about the quarantine. When I was depressed, I constantly asked my loved ones, when is this going to end? When I was in group therapy, one of my counselors imparted a piece of wisdom. They said, the degree to which you can accept ambiguity is the degree to which you are emotionally healthy. It is only when you stop focusing on your emotional state or when you will be happy again that you will realize that most moods are ambiguous. It continues, learning the skill to do that internally then naturally extends to the ability to do that externally. If I am uncertain about what the state of my mind will be tomorrow, how much more the state of the world? As a result, the only way to live is in a state of mindfulness, being present in a way that becomes automatic as seeing. If depression drives us into the past to desire a better time, then anxiety sends us spinning into the future, worrying what will be. Accepting uncertainty does neither, but it teaches us to inhabit the moment in a way that focuses on the needs of the day. The the degree to which we can accept ambiguity is the degree to which we are emotionally healthy. The the degree that we can accept the uncertainty of life, that says a whole lot about us. And that's really what we're seeing in Paul. He he is extremely emotionally healthy. He he is okay with the uncertainty of the situation. But the question is, how? And this brings us to the the next point. Have it in your notes. Certain Christ. The only way to accept uncertainty, you know, it's so easy to hear that read and be like, well, yeah, that'd be great if I could just will myself to do that. But what's missing from that article is is the way to accept uncertainty is to actually know a greater certainty that underlies all of it. Paul is so deeply confident here because he's deeply confident in the faithful God of the Bible. The immediate future for him it is up in the air. But the final destination is not. The result of Paul's trial before the Roman imperial throne is uncertain. But the result of Paul's trial before the throne of God here it is completely certain. And that's really what Paul is trying to get at when he says in verse 19, look there, it says, 
He knows this will turn out for his deliverance. Now you kind of read that, and it almost sounds like some people that will, you know, just be like, we well, just got to name it and claim it. You just got to say this thing is true, and it's going to happen. Like faith is just some magical force, and if he just uses his willpower, like he, he'll get what he wants. He'll get out of prison. He'll be free. But Paul is thinking much, uh, on a much bigger level here. The word, the word that's translated deliverance is the word soteria, and it's the most common word used throughout the whole New Testament for salvation in general. Like, Paul is not thinking about this little lowercase salvation of just getting out of his situation, but this big uppercase salvation. Though he's not sure if he will make it out of prison alive, he's absolutely sure that he will be vindicated in the resurrection at the end of history. And Paul here, it's interesting, he's alluding to someone else who is in the same situation. He's quoting the book of Job. If you don't know the book of Job, uh, it's, it's a story about a guy who lost everything, like he experienced the worst, worst, worst case scenario. He lost his family. He lost his business. He lost his health. And he was an awesome guy. He, he did nothing to deserve it. And, and Paul is quoting from, from Job chapter 13. Um, it's there actually in your bulletin. Uh, where Job is responding to all his friends who see everything that happens to Job. And they're theorizing about why this is the case. They think... Maybe he just has some secret sin that God is just punishing him for. But Job responds to them in verses 13 through 18. He, we read there, he says, be quiet and I will speak. Let whatever comes happen to me. I will put myself at risk. I will take my life in my own hands. Even if he kills me, I will hope in him. I will still defend my ways before him. Yes, this will result in my deliverance. For no godless person can appear before him. Pay close attention to my words. Let my declaration ring in your ears. Now then, I have prepared my case. I know that I am right. It's very confident. Job is absolutely certain because of his relationship with God. That's what you find out as you read more of Job. He, he knows that if he appeared before God's heavenly courtroom, the case would be closed and shut. It, it doesn't matter this so-called verdict that his friends pronounce over him. And, and again, as you read the book of Job, this is not because Job is perfect. Because as he says in chapter 19, the Lord is his redeemer. And Paul is appropriating, he's entering into that biblical scriptural confidence for himself by faith through the spirit. And it's even more certain for him because of what has been revealed in Jesus Christ. Have you ever considered that the anxiety that dominates your life could be rooted in a deeper uncertainty about your relationship with God. If you're really honest, you don't know where you stand with God. You feel like he's let down with you. You feel like if you were in that heavenly courtroom, he would not say, well done, good and faithful servant. 
And so at the deepest level at life, if that, that level's uncertain, like no wonder, you know, like me, you're like me freaking out about getting a ticket or having your car towed. Paul's not confident because he's some super Christian. He's confident because he knows Jesus. And it all started when Jesus burst into his life and forgave Paul. And Paul was killing Christians. He had plenty of marks on his record that you would think would come out in his heavenly trial and declare him guilty. Yet here he is, joyful and confident that he's going to be vindicated before God. And this joy and confidence can be ours too. If we look to Jesus by faith with Paul to take our sin on on him, on his death on the cross, and, and to receive his righteousness that's promised to us in the resurrection from the dead. And, and I really want to see how Paul is actually asking for more of this. This is not just a one-time thing. He, he, yes, he's confident here, but he knows this isn't automatic or permanent. He knows we're all forgetful. We're all constantly wandering away. Our default mode is to doubt that God is truly for us. And so Paul there in, in verse 19, he's, he's asking for, for prayer and he's asking for the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ. Like even Paul, who planted all these churches, who witnesses to people in prison, he's like, I need you guys to be praying for me. His perseverance is dependent on the regular supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ through people praying for him. And what does that look like? What is this language, the spirit of Jesus Christ? Well, what's the spirit's role? If you look all over the Bible, the thing you see again and again and again is the Holy Spirit is trying to point us to Jesus. He's trying to help us see more and more how beautiful Jesus is, how worthy of our trust he is. And to maybe even get us to the point of saying with Paul that actually to die and to go be with Christ, that sounds pretty awesome. I think it's a very hard thing for most of us who are young and have so much of our life ahead of us to think, to resonate with Paul here. But that's not Paul just because he's a super Christian. It's because the spirit is at work in him. It's because people are praying for him. So Paul finds his confidence in uncertainty, in this certain union he has with Christ. But that's not all that we have in this passage. There's another necessary piece to the puzzle. Because uh, I think for a lot of us, we not only are needing to know what our standing is with God, what our relationship is with him to weather how uncertain life is, but we need to know, what are we here for? You know, I recently heard this story from another pastor uh, about when he, he was working at this church in Utah. And there were these two older ladies who uh, were in the same retirement community, Mickey and Janet, and they both had gone through a lot. And he would go and visit them and talk with them. Uh, And when the pastor would meet with Mickey, she would often say, I just want to go home and be with the Lord. And then later on, uh, this pastor would meet with Janet and uh, she was, you know, really wrestling with, she'd lost her husband recently. And as she was processing through that one day, she finally said, okay, like, I love Ed. 
But now it's time for me to get back to work. The Lord still has me here and I've got some work to do. And so the last years of her life, she's like this 80 year old woman. She just throws it into volunteering in any way possible. She can at the church. She's hosting a community group. She's working in the nursery. She's doing women's ministry. She is pouring herself out for the church. And the question is, who's right? What's, what's the right perspective, Mickey or Janet? And it's really both. That's what Paul is wrestling with here. If you look at verses 22 through 23, he's being pressed between Mickey and Janet's perspectives. He, he's torn between this idea of departing and being with Christ. He wants to be done with how broken and difficult this world can be at times. He just wants to go home like Mickey. And yet he knows, like Janet, the needs of the present, the needs of the, the church are, are large. There's a lot of work for him to do in the moment. And being pressed between those two things is actually a really beautiful place to be. To find confidence and uncertainty. We not only need to know a certain Christ, to be certain about our, our relationship with him, but we need to remember that there, there is a certain church that God has called us to serve. To live is Christ for Paul. It, it, it means fruitful labor for the progress and joy of others. If you're a Christian and you are here and you're alive and you're well today, I can tell you without a doubt that That's why you're here, for the progress and joy of others. There is some work for you to do that really does matter. So what what if you factored this into how you think about your life? What if as you're thinking about grad school and the next step and where you're going to take a job, the foremost thing on your mind was how do I go and be a part of a church and serve in that place? What, What if, as you thought about what am I going to be doing this summer? Where am I going to be studying abroad? You actually considered it. Is there a church there? Is, there? is there a way I can be connected in some way to God's people? What if you actually brought Christian friends into your life, into these major decisions that you're making, who you're dating, who you're spending time with, and invited them to speak into it? Admittedly, that sounds really constraining. It involves giving up our freedom to choose to orient our lives around others. This is why a lot of people really don't want anything to do with Christianity or just kind of want to, you know, be like, yeah, I'm Christian, but I don't want to get too intense about it. Like they realize it's going to involve me being constrained. It's going to involve me setting aside some of my dreams, my plans for life. And so a lot of us, we'd rather, you know, we'd rather take Paul's phrase to live and fill it in with something else. To live is to be wealthy. To live is to be beautiful. To live is to have sex. To live is to be successful. But a life where we attempt to cope with uncertainty through obsessive, 
self-focus on our own goals and our own dreams is not joyful and freeing. You may not believe that right now, but go ahead and do that for the next five or 10 years of your life and then give me a call and tell me how you're doing. I can tell you the moments where I felt most fully present and undaunted by the certainty of uncertainty of life has been when I have been just so immersed in working for the progress and joy of others. Those are the moments where I could care less if I got a parking ticket or if I get towed or if something much worse happened. Those are the moments where I'm willing to take risk when I've truly been on mission with God's people. But as we wrap up, uh, I just want to reflect one more time. And why, why is Paul so confident that this is actually what's going to happen to him, that he's going to love and serve the Philippians? You know, he's got that he's pressed between these two options, but he seems at the end of this passage to conclude, no, he's going to stay here. He's going to stay around for the church, even though it's better to be with Christ. Well, I think one way to answer that is to ask, what would Christ choose? For Christ to live is blank. How, how would Christ fill in that sentence? And the answer is us. You and me, anyone united to him by faith, for Christ to live is us. Jesus is not calling us into something here that he, he hasn't done himself. He had this radically other-focused lifestyle. That is why he came and lived and died and was raised for us. And even now, the book of Hebrews tells us Jesus is ever living to intercede for us. His great concern from creation to incarnation to resurrection to ascension is our progress and joy. And so what else could we do in response to that? But to say with Paul, to live is Christ and to work for the progress and joy of God's people. Let me, let me close us in prayer. Father, we confess uh, so much of the time we are living for so uh, many other things. Uh, so many other things we think are going to bring us peace. We think are going to make us escape from the chaos and uncertainty of life. If we could just get enough money, if we can just be successful enough, if, if we can just make sure we can provide. We thank you for this reminder that to live is Christ, that the place where we will find the most joy and freedom is seeking after you, is reveling in the fact that you have declared us fully righteous and being a part of the progress and joy in the in the growth of your people. We pray you'd help us figure out what does that look like for each one of us on this campus. Um, help us to, to see the unique ways you're calling us to do that. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our last song, All I Have is Christ.